This is part one of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name's Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. All right, it's going. It's going. So, uh, all right, uh, I'm here uh, with Jocelyn, and it's, now's the time. Brian Hanford. Is that it? You guys, yep. You okay? All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> We're in central Washington, even though I hear Jocelyn and Brian continuously refer to this as eastern Washington. I think they have no clue what eastern even means. This is central Washington. Um, this is apple country. We're in the heart of apple country. We drove by more than seven apples on the way here. Like maybe seven bazillion. Dr. Brian, I'm not in this <laughs> But you're sitting right there. I Did know. you see the apples? I, yes, I saw the apples. There were so many. And Brian said they're organic, but Dr. Brian. Okay, okay. And, and we just left Seattle, which I just wanted to say real quick, like, I forgot how many cars they have, and they've made the roads wider to facilitate even more cars, which they immediately plugged up with more cars. We saw so many Teslas everywhere. People in the Seattle area love Teslas, which is cool. But, um, oh, man, it was so good to get away from all those cars. Hi, Brian. We're at your house by your invitation. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Bastard was chatty as hell five minutes ago. Couldn't shut him the fuck up. Now it's like I'm trying to record a podcast. He won't say a damn thing. All right, all right. So, so uh, the the biggest uh, supporter of my Patreon said he'd like to get more uh, property reviews, more of my feedback on property design stuff. And while you've been showing me around, I've been taking notes and I've been not getting too into talking about what I think you ought to do. Now, and of course, you've shared with me a lot of your ideas, and I really enjoy the Sepp Holzer approach, which is, screw what you want, shut the fuck up. I'm going to talk about whatever I would do if I was here. Although, you know, I'll give you a little bit here and there, you know, but for the most part, um, it, does, it also sounds like, you know, now how many of my podcasts have you listened to? Uh, most of them. I believe I started at about number 50. So I've listened to, what, that 350, 400 of them so far then? Yeah, yeah, I think more than 400. I think we just we just came out with number 450 a couple days ago. Um, so anyway, uh, uh, lots. So you got an you got a real good idea of what I'm going to say. And you're probably not going to cry. Of course not. <laughs> well, you know, when I go, I tell people don't invite me over because I'm just going to crush all your dreams. And uh, but it seems like you're you're pretty well, you pretty well know what I'm going to say, and and so you're probably not going to get too upset with the stuff I'm going to suggest. So, um, and and then by the way, the money you paid me to be here, that that money is already cleared and in my bank, and I already spent it on 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 snacks. So it's gone. <laughs> I eat a lot of snacks, especially on this trip. So, um, uh, so you're not getting it back in case you don't like what I have to say. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> 
you have so here we are we're on a river you've got riverfront property yes we have uh, 220 feet on the okanagan river yeah so um and we're sitting here looking at it there there's the water wiggling by uh, all sneaky like and and we've got a little bit of wind here um a nice a nice breeze we're on the back porch and this is sun country oh yeah we get a lot of sun here that's what makes the back porch so nice is because you get the cross breeze the river and then the sunlight filters through all our massive walnuts that we have everywhere yeah, you've you've got quite a few trees right now. On the way over here, I I was kind of getting the lay land. I've been here through here many times before uh, for podcasts and videos and all kinds of stuff. So I've been through Central Washington. I don't know how many times. And this is desert country. This is this is not lightweight desert. This is some pretty serious desert country. And I was guessing that the precip around here was going to be five or six inches. I was really surprised when you said it was. It's closer to eight inches, I believe. We uh, get 11 inches up on the property. It's about an hour and a half north of here, but it is quite a bit greener up there. But like I was saying, we were looking at the soil. The soil is a really heavy, sandy loam, but it doesn't hold almost any moisture. When it hits it, it goes straight back into the river. And that's probably where we get a lot of because once you're very far from the river, it pretty much turns to uh, sagebrush. Saw a lot of sagebrush. I saw a lot of places where the uh, sand and dirt was just exposed and there's just nothing growing there. Um, for any place where it's not touched, it's like trees are extremely rare. And and almost all the trees are growing right next to the river. Um, I'm going, I want to go, I wanna, I'm going to go out on a limb here. And I'm going to say that you're wrong about the precip. I, I think, I think, uh, based on the soil that I've seen and a lot of other little bits and bobs that I've seen, I, I think that it's less than eight inches a year here. I think you're closer to six. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was five, but, you know, like, I'm, cause you just bought this property. Yeah. And, and so I imagine at some point in time, you're probably going to get one of those fancy pants, weather stationy things with the little, you know, contraption to measure the rainfall and all that. Eventually, yeah, and then and then you'll get a good clear idea of like how much rainfall you get. But I'm going to go a little bit farther and say most of your precip is probably going to be in the winter time. Actually, be surprised. We'd had uh, was it last weekend that we had the rainstorm? Yeah. Yeah. Last weekend we had a rainstorm and it was actually so heavy that it started a brush fire and it only ran for about two hours and it literally blanketed the whole brush fire completely out. The rain was coming down so hard. Uh, it was basically like a monsoon. We probably got at least an inch, if not two inches of rain in a matter of just a few hours. Wow. Which is kind of how a lot of desert rain stuff happens is it's all like nothing, nothing, nothing too much. Well, here and, and now, but the way you said that made it sound like the brush or the, uh, the the rainstorm showed up, and the rainstorm manifested into something that would start a brush fire. Yeah, we get so we get uh, extensive lightning storms. So ah. the the it drops the rain in Seattle. Okay. And it comes over the top, and it drops lightning on us over here. But every so often, you'll get these lightning storms that the lightning storm came in. It started a brush fire. About two hours later, that's when the monsoon came, and it just inundated. And it was to the point okay. that we were in a, up the road in Brewster, and you didn't want to go out the front door because the water was trying to come into the grocery store. <laughs> but, okay. All right. Two acres, quite a bit of trees. You're right next to the river. There's irrigation. There's an irrigation system set up. Now, where the house sits is like the, the, the foundation of the house is probably 
50 feet above the water level right now. Does that sound about right? That's about correct. I figured it was about 50 to 60 feet above the river. Okay. All right. And um, when I arrived, you said that's where the well is, is over there. Yeah. And um, I guess that the well is 80 feet deep. Is that is that what it is? is it's between 70 and 80 feet. Okay. So, and it's like whenever you're in a place where it's near the river like this, usually the water table, like the river is, is usually fairly representative of what the water table is. And so, um, uh, but, but one of the things that came up was like, um, uh, the, the, you're doing some irrigation right now, which I'd, I'd like to persuade you to move away from. And I imagine that you, you're probably already thinking about that yourself. Oh yeah, extensively. That was one of my biggest things was to try and move away from doing any major irrigation. That's one of the reasons that I really wanted to do the plan for the pond is use the pond to help hydrate the land around it so that I don't have to go and turn sprinklers on and off. Okay. And so then, um, and then there was, we had a little discussion about, uh, pulling the water from the river, which is, it's a giant river. So it's like, they ain't going to miss it. And you happen to have water rights. Correct. We so actually, we'll actually mention it in a podcast. <laughs> Take the water from the river as much as you like. So we actually have, uh, irrigation district water, which is pumped from the river. We have water rights on the river and we have a well on the property. Okay. All right. All right. And I'm thinking like, well, if you're going to spend the electricity, uh, spend my electricity to, um, get the water to your irrigation, um, I'm kind of thinking like, if you get it from the river, I can't help but think that somebody upriver has been naughty. And whatever naughtiness they've put into the river, whether legal or not, you might not want that. But then if you get it from your well, which is probably, I'm going to guess, 600 feet away from the edge of the river, 600, maybe 800 feet away from the edge of the river, I'm guessing it's going to be a bit more filtered. And so, therefore, I would imagine cleaner. Now, of course, you've had, it sounds like you've had some some tests done on the well water or that you just observed some things about it. Well, we have a lot of iron in the water. We spoke with the neighbor, and everybody that has a deeper well around here has a lot of iron, but we also have magnesium, and that has to do with the buildup uh, that we've had inside the pipes. We're going to have to repipe the entire house because of the hard water that's there. Our water's actually to the point where it'll sometimes come out kind of rusty orange colored, and it's not necessarily the pipes. We're pumping that much iron out of the ground. Sounds tasty. Uh, you're gonna you're gonna roll back a bit on the Kool-Aid bill because that water already has flavor and color. Correct. Yeah. So um, I I'm kind of th- I'm still kind of thinking like okay well you know there's there's that the, the 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 iron and the magnesium in the water from the well and then um, versus whatever the mystery material is is up in the river you can test the river too and find out what that is but there's probably some things the things that you're going to be the most concerned about are going to be extremely difficult to test for um my rough guess is is that when it comes to any kind of irrigation i think i'd rather go with what comes out of the well it's my guess just shooting from the hip yeah there's more than likely there's quite a bit of pesticide and herbicide in the river water yeah that's my thinking too and maybe even uh some human being pathogens that we don't want and um 
I don't know. I just can't. I just kind of wonder about heavy metals. Uh, no, you think that the river is going to be free of heavy metals? Well, for the most part, because we have almost no mining. So most of what it is, if you follow the Okanagan River all the way up, it goes all the way to Canada, and you have the Osoyoos Lake all the way up there, mm-hmm. and it's pretty much everything from there down is all agriculture. Yeah. It, so the persistent herbicides and the pesticides are going to be your most concern with the river water more than anything else. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I'm I'm kind of thinking that there might be some unscrupulous folks doing unscrupulous things, and then not to mention a lot of times that uh, some of the towns are going to have like their sewage treatment plants, and um, some will do a better job with uh, uh, what they do before putting it into the river than others. Um, you know, but that's another story for another day. Uh, overall. Uh, I'm just kind of thinking, why is this? Why is this here? There's this thing grabbing on to me here. Why is it there? It's like, is it uh, supposed to keep the bugs out? <laughs> it was supposed to shade stuff, I think. Oh, it's supposed idea. to be, okay, a little, some kind of shade screen thing grabbing hold of my head. Um, all right. <clears throat> okay. Uh, I... I think getting water from the well for irrigation purposes is probably better than out of the river. I mean, you're probably more likely wanting to drink that rusty, magnesium-infested water uh, rather than the stuff out of the river. Oh, yeah, I would not want to drink river water. Yeah. This is actually a really slow river, so if there's going to be stuff in it, it's going to be in this one because it does get pretty low. Uh, Right now, I think it's sitting at about three, four feet deep. So for as wide as it is, that's pretty shallow, and it gets pretty warm. Okay. So, um, oh, next, is that a, I, I can't tell, is that a hummingbird? No, it's not a hummingbird, it's something oh, else. We actually had the, the really interesting part. So the walnut trees we saw, uh-huh. we actually found two different hummingbird nests. So we have actually at least two sets of uh, nesting hummingbirds, and the babies were actually out here feeding off of the hummingbird feeders we have. And we're, Currently, right now, you're looking at those are mostly goldfinches, and it looks like we got a few nut hatches that are out there too. Okay. All right. All right. Walnut trees. So the so the big thing that you've emphasized multiple times is walnut trees, and um, they there are some giants here. I'm just guessing that you bought the place because of the walnut trees, and you just love eating walnuts all day, every day. Well, they are one of my favorite nuts, but. The thing about it is, is they provide a extreme amount of shade, and the birds just love it. All the birds we have, and almost all the bird nests we have, are in the walnut trees. They prefer the walnut trees almost over everything else. And we actually had a, we've had a barn owl out back here and out on our pasture, actually living in the walnut trees. Wow, cool. Yeah. All right, and um, I'm just kind of thinking like. Uh, uh, You've got a lot of shade. They're providing a lot of shade, which is essential in this area that's so treeless and dry. In fact, I kind of think an important thing to point out is that as the air in the area blows through, that's going to be some some extremely dry air. Mm-hmm. And uh, so as the as the wind comes, as as any of the air in the area moves through, anything you've got going on that's green and lush and possibly like a uh, a, bl- a walnut tree that's trans inspiring water it's going to quickly take that away oh yeah the uh, the walnut trees are great if you stand out uh, by the pasture on that row of walnut trees along it and the wind blows through you can actually feel the temperature drop by 10 degrees or more when it gets really hot 
especially that's one of the good things about turning on the irrigation you turn the irrigation on the wind starts blowing uh tracy my wife she had to go out there she almost had to put a coat on because it was getting so cold in the shade underneath all those trees he he gave up your name tracy now you're known (laughs) 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 you thought you could be a private person for about a minute or two and then no he gave it up (laughs) yeah all right you've been outed okay um a lot of walnuts now of course uh there's a from the from a permaculture perspective there's a downside for walnuts and it is juggalones uh is it juggalones or is it juggalones now i could be wrong i've always juggalones so i'm gonna go with yours because i don't know that much juggalones so like without the uh so i think that there's a bunch of people that go by jug juggalos i think they call themselves i'm a i'm a jug are you talking about junglers? No, no, you're saying, so Jocelyn's over there saying, trying to correct me. It's gigolo. That's a male prostitute. <laughs> no, I'm thinking that there's a bunch of, I thought I saw something, but where the, and anyway, maybe I'm wrong about that. But I've always heard it referred to as jugloans, like without the uh in the middle of it. Just jugloans. But you're saying juggalones. And maybe that's right. I don't. I'm but we're both we're both mystified. One of us is right and who cares? But anyway, the thing is, what is it? It keeps other plants from growing. If you look underneath our walnut trees, you'll definitely agree cuz it's the biggest patches of dirt that we have are directly underneath the canopy of the walnuts. Yeah, it's this goo. It's a it's a bubbly goo that's ex- exuded from the roots of the tree and it's allelopathic. So, um there are only a few species of plants that can tolerate jug loans. And uh, so most gardens just do not do well near uh, a walnut tree. Now, um, you've just moved here, so uh, you, you don't quite know what kinds of walnuts you have yet. So they might be black walnut. And I don't know how to tell the difference. I've never I'd... had a walnut tree myself. I've just seen a few hundred I don't believe they're black walnuts. Uh, part of that is because when we've cut some of the branches, mm-hmm. black walnut tends to be very dark. These ones are not. I'm not sure exactly what variety. My guess would be some kind of variety of English walnut. Yeah. But until uh, you know, until we have the actual walnuts at the end of the season and we can look at some stuff more closely, it's uh, they're walnut trees. Okay. Nope. 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 Understood. And the reason why I'm going there is it's my understanding that the juglones that's put out by uh, other walnuts is not as intense as black walnuts. Yeah, that, that could be. I'm not sure. I've never actually dealt with black walnuts. I've only dealt with English walnuts, so you couldn't tell me by either one. Okay. All right. All right. Um, and, and so Tracy has provided us with a walnut. And uh, oh, here, let me just use my teeth. Ah, <laughs> oh, I couldn't open it. And so, um, oh, he's doing it with his hands. He did it. I'm impressed. Yeah, it's probably an English walnut. Black walnuts would have a, a thicker shell. Yeah. Their shells are a lot thicker, and uh, they don't crack nearly as easy. I wouldn't be able to crack a black walnut with my hand. Yeah. Okay. So I'm I'm kind of thinking that um, yeah, you've got a lot of walnut trees, and you got two acres, mm-hmm. and so it's to me it it seems a little from a permaculture perspective for two acres. I feel like uh, nine giant black or giant walnut trees to me feels a little suffocating. Um, but you know, you could have other reasons for like, no, I'm excited for it. I'm gonna do it. 
Well, the the biggest no, thing. The shade is great. Yeah. The shade is very good. Yeah, the the walnut trees provide a lot of shade, and I was really surprised because I, I like the fact I had walnut trees because it takes so long for them to get big and produce. But I kind of agree with you. I was like, we have way too many <laughs> walnut trees. But then we started seeing the birds. The birds just love the habitat, and uh. we have what four squirrels, I believe now, that are running through that basically inhabit just the walnut trees. The the uh, hummingbirds. Only grew, only put their nests in the walnut trees. It seems like the animal life really gravitates towards those. But that doesn't mean that, you know, after we've been here for a year or two, that we won't look at taking down several of the walnut trees because they are allopathic. They're something that kind of inhibits some of the stuff we might be able to do. But, you know, the thing is, is it's, re- it's really hard to grow a tree like that very fast because these things are so big. So they do add a lot of texture and substance and animal pathways for us. And our birds, we, we have very few right now, but we had one time we had about 40 plus uh, finches going around through the back of the yard here. And again, most of them were up either in the, what was this uh, tree over here you said it was? Oh, uh, I think that's a catalpa. Yeah. So we have two huge catalpas. They like those, and they really like the walnut trees are the main places that they all try to stay into. Okay. I mean, you got a, you've got a lot of deciduous trees right here, and it, it does seem like for a lot of the, the region, there's just no trees at all. So it's wonderful to see so many giant trees right here. Um, and, and I'm kind of thinking like, all right, so you got two acres. You're going to try and do permaculture stuff. We've got a lot of stuff to talk about. And um, I, can, I can understand wanting to keep the the walnut trees for a variety of reasons and um i i think and i'm we're going to get into a bunch of other stuff but i i kind of feel like i would be tempted to encourage something closer to a central leader on some of the trees although none of them really have that and then um try and get them to be more up way way up as as a very high canopy crop and then um, uh, to let more light in down below, because although you're trying to fight the sun, because it's hot here, and in fact, this, you know, here we are in an area too where it's like this is central Washington, and so the problem I had when I was in truly eastern Washington, you know, um, was that uh, when I would talk about it, people would be like, "Oh yeah, 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 I've been to Seattle, yeah," you know, and so. How how much does your climate here resemble Seattle? Uh, not very much. It it gets nice and dry. It actually makes it pretty enjoyable. I'm actually allergic to the mold that's over there. It's one of the other reasons we made this move. But we get, I mean, literally weeks and weeks and weeks of sunshine. And we get a nice cloudy day, and you walk out and you enjoy it. My wife, who's actually only ever lived over there, finally it rained again. And she goes... I actually enjoy the rain now. And I was like, because you know it's going to go away and it's not going to come back for a month. <laughs> yeah. Because in Seattle, it's like, uh, you know, a little drizzle for a couple of months straight. And and after after about three weeks of the constant drizzle, you're kind of going a little crazy. Like, I I don't think I can handle this much longer. But um, uh, so the, the key is, is that there's the Cascade Mountains between here and Seattle. And, and Seattle is famous for being soggy, but it's, it actually, they get 30 inches of rain. And then if you go just east of Seattle, a little, you snuggle up to those Cascade Mountains a little bit more, or you go up to 60 inches of rain a year. But if you go a little bit west of Seattle, you find the Ho Rainforest, which is, I believe it's 160 inches of rain a year. So, um, Seattle's got only 30, which I don't think is like, you know, 
stellar. Um, but anyway, I do I do kind of feel like um, uh, this climate here is radically different from Seattle. And a lot of it is because when the weather moves from the Pacific Ocean and it hits those Cascades, the Cascade Mountains milk all the clouds. And then uh, it's not very often that any of those clouds make it past there carrying anything with moisture. So it ends up really dry right here. Yeah, that's that's how we get the lightning storms. Because it drops most of the moisture on the other side, but the clouds are still coming through and it generates more static electricity. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're actually in the rain shadow of the Cascades. It's mm-hmm. so one of the reasons why Seattle actually gets less rain. It's actually partially within the rain shadow of the Olympics, which is where Squim is. Mm-hmm. That's why Squim gets so much more sun and why it's drier is because it's actually in the rain shadow of the Olympic Mountains. And we're in the rain shadow of the Cascade Mountains, which is a much more substantial rain shadow. Right. Right. Bigger mountains. Um, and that's another thing, too, is about, about the Seattle area in general. It does seem like everything is made out of mildew and mold and mushrooms and slime and and goo. And I mean, it's it's they call it the Emerald City, and it is everything is rather green and lush. But um, I, there it comes at a price of yeah. of uh, of all kinds of things, and it's it's like I I struggle with it here. I I would much rather try and do something here, although I would prefer something where you could get uh, trees growing naturally here. Uh, like like if you had a field that was untended, that it would be covered in some kind of tree. Uh, this to me, it's it's a little because like if you started off with bare land right here, you'd be talking about like well in 30 years we might be able to get some shade built up. Yeah, possibly it is it is quite drier here, but that means that's why we need to have you back out to go look at our 40 acres because ah. it's covered currently in planted trees and we have several open pastures, but we even have currents, wild Pacific currents. Mm-hmm. growing in slag piles, which are basically, they pushed them up and created hugel culture that I didn't have to mess with. <laughs> nice. Okay. Uh, another tree I saw here, which, okay, I'm. if I lived here, I think what I would be doing, and we we got to talk about a lot of these things, but, but I saw spruce trees. I don't know if you're in love with spruce trees or you want to develop a deep, but I would... I'm okay. Cutting to the chase, I would take all the spruce trees out. Yeah, we're we're contemplating on taking. We probably leave one. We might take out all the others, but again, they do give us some texture to land. Now we'll probably wait a little bit over the next year or two to really decide about any major tree changes, just because they are. But that one that's trying to die out front is going to be one of the first ones to go. Okay. You've got uh, Tracy, who we recently learned about, learned of that she exists, um, and and then I I also heard a rumor that there are three kids. Yes, we we have Tracy's my wife, and then we have three kids. Ellie's the oldest, Virgil in the middle, and then Tanzan, who's the youngest. Okay. Now, my general impression is is to get a really easy permaculture system going to produce food for you, for a person, um, and with no inputs, is one acre per person. You have two acres. So if I were sitting in your shoes, which I'm not, but I'm arrogant, and so I'm going to just <laughs> pretend that I am and talk anyway, and that is that um, I I would lose all the spruces because um, they're they're not a very good permaculture plant. They're they're allelopathic. I mean when when I when I came through and I looked at them, I'm like, yep, there's a spruce, and it's like, look what's growing underneath them. Not a damn thing. And so 
<clears throat> at least the walnuts are are bringing in walnuts. And and they're, they're probably bringing in more walnuts than you would ever eat. But if you can get it to be a high canopy kind of a thing, which is going to provide some cooling still and crop, and you'll be able to grow some things underneath it, then I kind of feel like um, it is it is a bounty. And plus, most nut trees, and walnuts are the most famous for this, are going to have a lovely taproot. And so if they have... There's a, there's a very good chance that every uh, uh, walnut tree that you've got here, every nut tree that you have here, has found the water table. Yeah, the water table sits roughly about 25 feet below us. So I'm pretty sure most of the older trees have probably all reached all the way down to the water level. Right. And they're and they're cool with uh, sharing their water with a jug loans package. And so then if you have plants that... Um, tolerate jug loans, then in a way they end up growing relatively weed-free because the weeds don't handle the jug loans well at all. So it's it's kind of like you've got this chemical weeding that's going on of a sort. But I kind of don't really think of uh, walnut trees as being a really great polyculture plant. Um, so, but hey, you've got a bounty of them already, <clears throat> and, they're, and they're giving us texture to the land too. The the spruces, like I said, as as we move on, well, I've only been here a short time. I want to take a little bit more time before I start to decide to chop and hold trees out. But yeah, we'll probably be getting rid of the spruces, and we'd like to go to more production variety plants that would give us some kind of food substance or some other use that we could get from them. We just, you know, we don't want to jump into hacking down some, you know, thirty, forty year old trees real quick before we really decide do we want to get rid of that specific tree and you got to remember this is two acres but we have 40 acres it's not very far away right i i want to i want to um so cool um i'm at the same time i'm kind of thinking like i'm trying not to think of the 40 acres now you said something earlier and this is and it's time now to get to this you said um i want to think of this property as my zone one and zone two and then i want to think of the other property as my zone four and zone five and my response to that is is um if I lived here, I would not do that. I would say that um, you're going to eventually have something to live in up there, and that's going to, uh, and up there you'll have your zone one effectively around that, and it's and maybe it's just a campsite, maybe it's just a tent pad, yeah. you know, or a place where you park a land whale or something like that. But um, <clears throat> for here, for this two-acre property, and you're kind of looking into this whole space of like, uh, um, I've got. You know, five bellies and two acres that it's like I'm going to focus on heavy duty um, food crops and and I'm going to try and, and grow enough food to feed five people year round here without inputs, um, which means that I'm kind of thinking that you're going to have <clears throat> your zone one, zone two and a zone three here. And you're probably going to end up, and I love how Alan Booker does this. Alan Booker has got this philosophy of like, you, you know, you're not going to have a zone five. What you are going to have, though, is like introduced pieces of zone five. So you talked about the wildlife up in the trees. And it's kind of like, you're probably not going to climb those trees and spend an afternoon. But, uh, but the wildlife will. Correct. And so, in a way, it's kind of like this tiny speck of Zone 5 hovering over the rest of the property. And so, you're facilitating a Zone 5 with a very small footprint of being the tree trunk. 
Yeah, or um, the top of the canopy, which would be a very good way to do it. But yeah, we what we're looking at is we'll we'll produce probably most of our food from here eventually. I figure it'll take us three to four years to get everything completely finished and in. But yeah, the uh, property we have is kind of a secondary property, and then most of the stuff's gonna come from here. So we'll like I said, we'll probably look at getting rid of the spruces. We're gonna look at doing some different stuff in the uh, field too to help increase the amount of production we can have on the small scale that we have. Okay, so um, I. All right. The thing I was getting at was is that I think that on this property you've got zone one, zone two, and zone three. I think that you'll have like maybe the occasional brush pile that I saw a brush pile getting started by a fence. It looked like you're trying to clear some stuff out, and and you're I don't you're probably thinking you're gonna do something else with that. But I'm kind of thinking like in time you'll have a few brush piles here and there, and those will basically act as a type of zone five. At least Alan Booker would refer to them as zone five. Yeah, well we keep the brush piles. We started keeping those because the quail really like the brush piles, but so do a lot of the other smaller birds. So we kind of just leave them around so that they have some place to go into. It's also why we haven't cut all the weeds down in our field. It's just like the mullein. We left all that mullein to grow yeah. up because, again, it's a it's a really good food source for a lot of those birds. So we're actually integrating those zone four and zone fives into the middle of our property by leaving little areas and niches that allow the wildlife to come in and utilize those areas. Yeah. And you mentioned something about mice. Oh, yeah. And yeah, so the, those little mice. brush piles might encourage something that thinks mice is tasty. Oh, yeah. We already did that when we mowed the field. We had the owls and the hawks and all the other birds come in, and they decided that all those mice in the field looked like they were really tasty until they had stuffed themselves full. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, <clears throat> And some of them moved into the neighborhood thinking, these, these guys are all right. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the the dog has too, because not only do we have mice, but we have the lovely pack rats that like to get into everywhere. And the dog's currently been trying to hunt down every single one that's on the property. So, uh, zone one has is when I'm when I was here, I saw that there was a bunch of uh, projects from the previous owner that were getting loaded up onto a trailer. Uh, I imagine they're going to find their way to some kind of dump somewhere. And uh, but I also noticed those spruce trees were sitting in your zone one. Yeah, they were pissing me off. <laughs> yeah, the the ones put right there in the front walk are kind of not where I would definitely not have put a spruce tree. And we're looking at taking at least one down that's trying to die, and we're going to think about try and put a car parking there so mm-hmm. that way just out from the parking we could have a little bit more area to do more gardening but we're also looking out on the side right there away from the spruce trees we could do some more gardening right on the front walk okay um black locust oh yes we have several black locusts and we have the really huge one over here on the side of the house that's uh i'm not sure how tall do you think that black locust is the one that's on the side of the house yeah that one is uh, that is 60 feet yeah yeah and um i've seen a couple that are bigger but not many that is a big one. I think you might need to be getting a little nervous about it getting uh, so old that it wants to topple over. 
But you know, it's all we got to do is cut it off, and they'll just grow right back from the trunk. There is that too. There is that, and uh, I, you know, another thing to keep in mind is, I mean, that wood has so much value in so many different ways. So, black locust, congratulations on getting some black locust. Um, yeah, we didn't even have to bring them in. That was one of the things that was like, oh, we're gonna have to go get black locust seedlings or seeds, and I went out into the backyard and directly off the back porch, I go. I don't have to do anything. We have a black locust right there, and we have seedlings popping up all over the place. Yeah, and look at the look at the seed hall that that thing's generating already. Yeah, yeah. you're gonna have plenty of black locust seeds. Oh yeah, we already <clears throat> plan on. That's one of the things I want to transplant out into the pasture is I want to get some of the black locust. And then we were discussing about possibly running the back black locust back along the riverbank over here too to create a uh, timber or wood harvest for fuel. You know, <clears throat> normally I don't want to get into government and politics and stuff like that, but it's like within seconds of arriving here, I got to hear all about FEMA. And uh, and it's like, what the hell does FEMA give a crap about you for? And uh, so FEMA has decided that FEMA is now in the money-making business. And you've, you're holding on to all of FEMA's money that they desperately want. And so you need to spread your legs and brace yourself. Yeah, we pay $350 a month for flood insurance currently so we're we got some plans to help uh, mitigate that so we can go to a no flood insurance considering the fact that this house has actually survived at least one if not 200 year flood events and the floods have come and gone and the house is still here and there's no evidence of any flood in and around the house at all and then we've spoken to several of the people that have lived here longer and they've said the same thing the flood waters never get up to where the house is at but you know when FEMA runs out of money they got to try and get it from somebody else so so basically they've they've said that uh this you know hey buddy you want to buy some flood insurance it's more like hey buddy you better pay this flood insurance or else we'll take your whole property away from you yeah pretty much there wasn't a discussion about whether we could or could not have flood insurance it was no no you have to get it and then on top of it before we could even get the loan to uh get the house paid for we had to actually go pay for the flood insurance and provide all the flood insurance information to the mortgage company because they wouldn't even fund the mortgage until we had all that purchased. All right. So flood insurance, you know, what is it, like $100 a year or something? Uh, no, about 4000 $4,000. So in, in a 10-year span of time, you're going to pay $40,000. And then um, and they're saying that if water touches your house, they're going to do, n well, nothing. They're going to say, stop being such a whiny baby. <laughs> but it's like, okay, the the floods got so high, higher than they've ever been in the last, in all of recorded history. So it would have to get, because so, I think he said something like the, the closest, for the 100-year flood, it got within, um, uh, it would have to rise six feet higher to even touch the bottom inch of the of the house foundation. Yeah, so the basically we would be within the hundred year flood event would be within several feet of the foundation. But as you've seen, our house sits on a foundation that's roughly almost three feet out of the ground. Yeah. So the actual house would take more than a if it if our house flooded Basically, everybody on the Okanagan River would be in trouble. So, in order in order to be able to not only file a claim, and then they're going to, of course, because insurance company, they're going to reject it. Yeah. And it's like, stop being such a whiny baby. A lot of people have had their houses destroyed. What, what makes you think you're so special? So, anyway, in order to be able to get 
whatever it is that you're paying for um, through court, um, then your house would have to be destroyed. And so that would mean that the water level would have to be six feet higher than the 100-year flood has ever been, plus three feet to get beyond the foundation up to the house, plus a good five feet. So um, six plus three plus 14 feet above the highest recorded uh, flood event that has ever happened in this area. And then through a court battle, you might get money from this required insurance. Yeah, that or they might just give me a travel trailer. That's what they did to a lot of people. Yeah. Okay. So you've paid $40,000 in insurance. Okay, yeah, and it, this is required. All right, all right. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, this is, uh, and and then uh, uh, there was a fascinating thing that came out of all of this. It turns out that if you uh, dig up some dirt from one part of your property, maybe to make a pond, and and then you dumped it out here, like between you and the river, and basically raised the ground level twelve inches your uh you would go from forty thousand dollars every ten years i believe if i ran the math correctly it would go down to zero correct yeah if we raise the soil level 12 inches that puts us above their set line that they have for flood insurance and even though that's still two feet below our house as long as the dirt's high enough they won't look twice at it and we won't have to pay anything for flood insurance so damn that guy he found out he figured it out oh i hate that guy but that just means we got to dig a pond right Right, right, right. And I've got that on the list. Look, it's the next thing on the list. Pond! Okay. So, um, what you, what's your water source for this pond? Because I didn't see any creeks or anything. Because we picked, we talked about a spot. We were up there. Mm-hmm. I didn't see any creeks that would run into that pond. Well, that's, that's where our, our water rights on the river, our irrigation and our well would come in as we could fill the pond from any one of the three sources. Okay, so there's like already pressurized water up there that you get to have all you want, and it's in a pipe. Yep. And so you gotta, and you gotta pay for that water anyway. Yeah, it's uh, $200 a year for our irrigation, and they pump it directly out of the river. That sounds like a far greater value than what FEMA was offering. <laughs> yeah, it would definitely, would definitely be more in our favor mm-hmm. to using that. Right. So you could just kind of like hook a hose up to it and put it into your pond and run it as much as you want and there you go yeah actually we already have the sprinkler piping out there so all we got to do is just dig it up move it back and we'd actually be able to just run the pvc pipe straight into the pond and if we turned it on of course where does it go from the pond it goes back into the river which is where they're pumping the irrigation from to begin with right so this is the river water which we talked about a little earlier is like kind of kind of would rather have something less rivery but um but hey you know it's a water source and it's free it's already right there and you get to direct exactly where it goes yeah exactly it's two hundred dollars a year and how much would it cost to run an electric pump even for a month versus two hundred dollars for the whole year and we can turn it on and basically just run it non-stop the whole time oh is it is it you, you would still have to run a pump 
Yes, whether we do it from the well or whether we do it from the river, we'd have to run a pump either way. For the oh. irrigation district, it's $200 a year, and that's what it is for the whole entire year, as much water as we can pump out of our three-inch pipe out there, and then we don't have to pay anything more. So reality is I think the irrigation water is going to be the best way to fill the pond, and then what we'll probably do is switch over to using the well water to top it up over time. But we'll just have to see what the evaporation is like and then see how much that we can irrigate with the actual pond. It does seem like almost every oasis in this area is um, artificially irrigated, and um, and I think it would be cool to get some demonstrations of non-irrigated systems. But, okay, <clears throat> the pond. Let's talk about You've got an idea for a bunch of different ponds. I, th- I think the thing to do is <clears throat> start with one pond for now, mm-hmm. and then uh, after that pond is kind of settled in, go for some more. But but the other thing is, is that one of the big rules that I like to push is do your earthworks first. So now is the time to do your earthworks. So um, that's going to include, you know, whatever pond designs you have. But I kind of feel like, you know, we got to kind of get this pond built first. Then you can start looking at how to build the other ponds or where you're going to build the other ponds. Um, but we picked the highest point on the property. Now, the property has got maybe, I mean, if you don't count this little drop-off between the the porch that we're sitting on right now and the river, if you don't count that, I would have to say that there is five feet of elevation difference across your whole property. Does that sound uh, about right? I think the high point out there is probably reaching closer to 10 foot because when you stand down by the walnut trees, it's basically all uphill all the way up to there. So I think we're looking at probably maybe 10 feet worth of height. Okay. All right. All right. I'm going to go ahead and say 10 feet then. I'll go I'll go along with what you're saying. And, um, and I was kind of looking up there and I was thinking a quarter of an acre would be a little too big. There's a hummingbird drinking out of one of your feeders there. And so, um, you know, I, I kind of learned somebody was over at our place and apparently they had never seen a hummingbird before. Where were they from? Were they from the East Coast? Australia. Australia. Oh, right. They don't have hummingbirds at all in Australia, but they have them on the East Coast, right? Surely they do. Yeah, okay. So um, I guess as odd as we think the kangaroo is or the platypus or the koala bear, they think it's like, whoa, they got hummingbirds and moose. (laughs) All right. So uh, I thought a quarter of an acre was a little too big because you've only got two acres to work with here. Yeah. And uh, But normally, quarter acre is what I shoot for because um, that's generally the biggest you can get away with by law, where you kind of get into that better-to-ask-forgiveness-than-permission space. And usually at a quarter of an acre, they're like, oh, it's only a quarter of an acre? I'm not driving out there to look at somebody's quarter-acre mud puddle. And so, all right. Um, however, you know, you want to go as big as you can because then you can start getting into the whole thing of like um, uh, getting it to be deep enough. And when you get deep enough, there's all kinds of benefits that come from that. Which, by the way, um, Seattle, when Seattle gets to the very, very coldest, is maybe 10 or 15 degrees. Like once every five to ten years they might get to ten degrees i think it's i think it'll be extremely rare that they would ever get below ten degrees fahrenheit um whereas here how cold does it get here well amazingly enough one of the things you got to remember is we're right next to the river we're actually only about one zone colder 
than what Seattle is. Really? We're about one to two zones colder, and it's mostly it's the river. The river is the biggest mitigating factor in keeping it warmer right here. Now, the interesting thing is you go up out of the river, mm-hmm. and it's about three or four zones colder. Yeah. So out yeah. around us gets cold and gets quite a bit of snow in that, but down here on the river, we're actually pretty warm, as, as noted by the fact that we have these trees and then the... Uh, what was the other one? There's there's another plant we have growing that doesn't tend to grow in a colder climate. And it's because we're basically in a microclimate right here on the river, right. which I'm really interested to see this winter. This winter is going to tell me quite a bit more because we're going to be able to tell what's going on. But I'm hoping to bring the pond as a mitigating factor for that temperature mm. to the area we're looking at putting that. And by putting it as high as possible, we're hoping to be able to uh, pipe the water down and out to the rest of the property and maybe be able to get it to flow through and hold more water on the property. So I know that we're really close to where Ernie Narke used to live in the Okanagan Highlands, and I believe that where they are, it would get to 30 below uh, Fahrenheit, which I guess around there is getting to be pretty much the same as Celsius, but 30 below, and uh, they would almost every winter have snow all winter like uh the snow would fall around thanksgiving and stick until march like it would they would not have it would just stay all winter which is i think like in in missoula generally we have a a lot of melt off through jan throughout the winter the snow comes and goes and comes and goes and it melts off through the winter we'll have warmer days so um i think that yes you've got a microclimate here's a great example of the mighty power of a microclimate and so what you're saying is is that the temperature here every 10 years it might possibly get down to 10 to zero yes so what one of the interesting things is is if you go up like the okanagan highlands or the uh, flats above omac uh-huh. both of those tend to get down below zero quite a bit yeah our property that's just an hour and a half north gets five plus feet of snow and it's negative 10 negative 20 and uh, when i was looking at the actual zone maps i was really surprised to see what our zone was here because we're uh believe we're a zone four up there okay so it's quite a bit colder and it's amazing that just getting up away from the river changes over here so much compared to most places but you know again we do have this huge body of water flowing through next to us and it, it still does get cold it just doesn't get Get down to the the negative 20. You know we don't get quite those cold temperatures. And I know down on the uh, Columbia and when we were where we were at on the uh, <laughs> Antiat, the the Antiat was the same way. It was very rare for it to get much below zero. It's like a zero was a really cold day. Most of the time your coldest temperatures would be like 10 degrees. And we're actually lower elevation here. And from what I've seen from what we have growing for plants and some of the zones that I've been looking at on the maps that were actually quite a bit warmer right through here, which was really surprising me as to what we could possibly grow because of that change in zone. So with a pond, if the pond is shallow and it gets to 10 degrees outside, it's going to freeze all the way through. But if the pond is deep, then uh, the pond probably will not freeze over ever. It'll and so because the um, the warmer water at the bottom will rise to the top of the pond and not freeze, and then the colder water at the top will sink to the bottom of the pond and get warmed. And so, <clears throat> um, 
anyway, uh, there's if if you're going to be raising fish in this pond, which mm-hmm. I'm suspect that you are. Yeah, we want to definitely look at probably at least bluegill. Okay, all right. And then you know, you want to keep your pond from from freezing. So, um, all right, I'm recommending a sixth of an acre pond. Um, so it's still a pretty good sized pond, but um, it's going to be uh, 30% smaller than a quarter of an acre. Um, so uh, good for swimming, uh, plus it's the high point of your property, so 10 feet higher than most of the rest of the property. Um, uh, I also kind of believe that a good idea is going to be you've got... You don't have a huge amount of wind, but you do have some. And it sounds like every once in a while the wind shows up. And and the other thing is is that because there is some wind. So like the whole time I've been here there's been a let's call it a breeze. Sometimes it's been a little bit more than a breeze. It's a little bit of a blow, but not real strong. And um I'm I'm thinking uh berms and 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 of course I kind of tend to be a little berm heavy in all of my designs but um you do have a road back there uh a road you know and and I kind of feel like it it takes something away from the, your property to have that road there um you know the cars are going a little bit fast not too terribly bad and there's not too many cars on that road but when a car goes by you definitely notice it and yeah. and it's like it, so it kind of takes away a little bit from from your zen you know and so i'm kind of thinking Plus, the other thing is, is that once you start to build your pond, um, which, because we're in the state of Washington, um, it's a hog waller. Okay, <laughs> that's that's what you're building. It's not a not a pond. Um, plus, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how to seal it, which I think for you is going to be hogs. Yeah. And so, uh, but but setting that aside for for just a moment longer. I I like the idea of having a bit of a berm there, and it seems like your your property you've got a spot there that's already a little higher than the road. Yeah. And so it's like you know add that there because because I I remember the you know so there's the the FEMA guy he wants a lot of money from you he's looking at that forty grand and he's licking his lips and I'm kind of wondering who else might be cruising down that road thinking you know look there's Brian. I'm going to go get some money out of them. But if there's a berm there, they're like, I can't see Brian. You know, yeah. I wanted to go and pick his pocket, but I don't see him. I don't even know he's there. And so um, so there's a little bit of that. I mean, you guys are having great success with your neighbors, with the people that you've met in this region. You know, you've told me several stories of just things are so lovely and those people you can say come on down our driveway we've got iced tea and lemonade and cookies you guys are cool that's awesome but then there's this there's this uh fema person who goes (laughs) and is is full of wicked intentions and and he's got cousins they have ideas too and so I'm just kind of thinking, like, I've just heard so many stories from so many people, so many things. I just want that berm there. And that's me. And, and I'm, I suspect you guys will be like, yeah, we're not doing a berm. What a, what a bunch of nonsense. 
Well, the, and the I know you said trees. You're mm-hmm. thinking of like, I'm going to put some trees right here. I will delete the road with trees. And I, and so I get it. And I just kind of think you're going to find out that the, the trees don't delete the road very well. But the berm, that that's that's seriously deleting the road. Yeah, well, the, th- the thing about the berm is I'd really love to do a berm. I'm just not sure if we're going to have the amount of soil here after we get done doing some of our other earthworks to be able to do it. I would love to do a Hugel culture berm and have vining crops on one side, have the trees on the other, so that the trees and the berm work together. But I was thinking if we didn't do a berm is looking at uh, one of the different kinds of grasses, like a pompous grass, uh-huh. and maybe try to use something like a pompous grass to create biomass that's large enough to take the place of a berm. What happens if somebody drives down that road and there's not a berm there and they see your hog waller and and they went and they got they got hell from the department of making you sad for a pond they put in and they decided to call your hog waller a pond. And so they called the department of making you sad and said, Brian's got a pond, go kick him in the nuts. Well, that's one of the reasons I figure we put a piece of plastic around the top. So when they come out and say, this is a wetland, I can go, no, it's artificial, see? But then I don't have a bottom that's sealed because I don't want the bottom being sealed. So I have a few ideas for that. But again, if we can come up with the materials, I would love to do a berm, clear across, even maybe take the fence out and make the whole fence line into a berm and put the fence on top the berm. (laughs) So that gives me even more height and more blockage. I'd love to do all that stuff what it's going to come down to is money and materials if i would love to do it but the biggest problem we have out here too is it becomes hard to get soil and even gravel is a little bit hard to get out here because we are well most people don't quite understand just how far out we are we're about an hour and 15 to an hour and a half from wenatchee and there's not a whole lot out here which is really nice but it also limits us on certain things um, yeah, we we drove here, <laughs> so so we got to fully experience uh, the big, and we've driven around out here a few times in the past, and it's like yeah 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 that's a that's quite a long drive from <laughs> things, um, but okay, um, I'm advocating a berm. If I were here, I'd I would focus on the berm, and you're right, you're going to be hard pressed to come up with even dirt, let alone soil. Uh, uh, nearby, um, and and it is uh, no doubt uh, there's a there is a challenge there, and um, and there is the possibility of like you know because part of it is, is is that you're thinking like I want I want to I want to get paid forty thousand dollars in order to be able to to shuffle some dirt around here because it turns out there's this whole program where if I could just raise the ground level 12 inches near my house I'll get $40,000 I'm cool with that yeah that that's what we want to try and do yeah yeah it's worth $40,000 to do that shuffle this podcast is continued in part two don't forget go out to patreon.com slash paul wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts